Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations in the current world and particularly the current COVID-19 crisis. Our current series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. We discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia as response moves into recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Today's March 2nd, 2021, and for most of Australia, we're going through a time of remembering what this time last year was like. It was around this time last year when the pandemic truly hit Australia, when the social distancing, lockdowns, and other restrictions that have become such a big part of our lives first began. Thankfully, they are a reminder of how far we've come. While in the United States, the death toll passed the grim milestone of 500,000 people losing their lives this week, in Australia, after some short lockdowns in Victoria have finished, most of the community is returning to large parts of normality. Shortly after this time last year, Cube released a report identifying the four waves of change and disruption that the COVID-19 pandemic would bring. We stated that the effects of this pandemic were to extend far beyond the initial public health crisis. The disruptions it would cause included an enormous backlog in critical services that would have to be delayed or suspended during these periods of physical distancing. And oftentimes, this backlog was going to hit services that were already under significant demand pressures. This week, one of the many examples of this backlog was the justice system. Victoria's Director of Public Prosecutions is proposing significant measures, including substantial penalty reductions for early guilty pleas, in order to help the Magistrates Court get through some 150,000 outstanding criminal matters. These challenges come at a time when Victoria's courts, prisons and justice system were already under immense strain even before COVID-19 began. The incarceration rate in Victoria is higher today than it has been at any time since before Federation. And the number of people in prison in Victoria is double what it was just 15 years ago. Our guest today is Marius Smith. Marius is the CEO of VACRO. VACRO support people in contact with the criminal justice system and their families to safely and successfully rejoin their communities. They work with people returning from prison for the benefits of those people, their families, and of course, the wider community. Marius, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Good. Just to get us started, can you tell us where you're speaking to us from? What's what's your remote working experience and how have you found it so far? I'm here in Melbourne in my house and I'm lucky enough to be in that section where it's been relatively easy working from home. We've got a spare room and we do have kids. They're 10, 12 and 14. So homeschooling wasn't too bad, although sometimes I did yearn for just an hour in the house by myself. But I certainly got to the end of last year and I reckon I was a little bit too comfortable at home, you know. I think I, I wore two pairs of footwear in, in six months, like a pair of runners for walking around my 5K zone and and then my slippers the rest of the time. And I was definitely doing the, the Zoom dress code of a shirt up top and, you know, jeans or trackies on the bottom with my slippers. It was a 10-second commute from the kitchen Almost so comfortable that I reckon I got to the end of the year and I, I kind of didn't miss going out for meetings or to the office. And I think probably just a, the break over Christmas was good in um, in just getting me a new frame of mind. And I did come back and find myself thinking, yeah, no, it's time to get back out into the world, which is probably a good way to start the new year. Let's talk about the justice system. Going into this crisis, Victoria was already facing a ever-increasing prison population. Mm. Can you just 
paint that scene for us a little bit. Tell us about Victoria's prison environment going into the crisis. Yeah, uh, Victoria's traditionally had a fairly low prison population per capita, but it's grown really quickly over the last decade. In 2010, it was around about 4,500 people in prison. And then you get to the eve of COVID and it's 8,200. So it was really rapid growth. And there were a range of factors over that period. There was a toughening of parole conditions, tightening of the bail act, end, end of suspended sentences. So a lot of things that happened that contributed to it. So we got to 2020 and you had this explosive growth. You had 40% of people in prison were on remand, which means they're either awaiting trial or they're awaiting sentencing. You know, the government was expecting the numbers to keep climbing. They'd committed $1.8 billion to spending on new prisons, including a, a new maximum security prison at Geelong with well over a 1,000 beds, building hundreds of new beds across existing prisons. Certainly population growth plays a role, but effectively changing a whole bunch of legislative and policy settings over the last decade. You know, we've set ourselves for you know, a continued expansion of prisons. You said a big part of that is something like 40% is remand. Mm. Do you have a sense of how many of those people are likely to end up with a prison sentence at the end of that or is that actually the totality of, of their time in prison? Uh, yeah, it's it's really mixed. And, and as the pressure has come on to the entire justice system as numbers have risen, we are seeing a lot of people who uh, get out with time served. So, you know, they roll up to the magistrate's court, they get a three-month sentence, they've been in for six or nine or 12 months, and that does happen, and they're immediately back out into the community. So, And that's obviously far from an ideal situation for a few reasons. One, you're serving time that you weren't sentenced to, and two, it's you know, obviously very disruptive to your life. A big part of your organisation's work is yeah, supporting people who are returning from prison. What do we know about recidivism, repeat offending, or or just more generally, um, what makes for a good transition out of prison into re-entering normal life, to use that phrase? Recidivism is the outcome we're shooting for. Right now, 43% of people can expect to return to prison within two years, which is sort of the most standard definition of recidivism. So it's really high, and that's also climbed over the last decade. At VACRO, we sort of ask what needs to happen in a person's life to get them to, to the point where they don't re-offend. And there's a lot of evidence about this. You know, there was a, a UK academic in the 90s who, who sort of started with a really simple question, which was what's the difference between people who keep offending and people who stop? And there's a whole lot of really interesting research that's come out about based off that basic question and that still continues to come out. And, you know, it starts with, you know, a determination to forge a new life, to create a new narrative. What we kind of see is people saying, I, t- I did those things, but that's not me. That's not who I am. So they take responsibility for their past, but they also kind of draw a line. They put it in the past and then they look forward and, and they're sort of starting to create a new story about who they are, who's not that person, but this law-abiding person. So that's kind of the first step. And then there's a, a whole bunch of things they need in place. One really important thing is healthy connections with family and community. And the flip side of that, I guess, is is also perhaps not continuing those connections with people who aren't so good for them. They obviously need access to, you know, resources and opportunities. So you're going to need a house, you need money. So ideally for a lot of people, that's a job. In many cases, you might need certain supports for your disability. So it's sort of different in every case, but we need those basic building blocks in place to allow us to build a life on top of. And then the other thing that comes with it that's really important is recognition and respect for that new identity. So it might be 
you know, recognition as a parent or a husband or wife or a volunteer or a community member. So you can see that there's all of these different things that go together. There's the economic aspect, there's the family aspect, there's the role for a community itself to support people when they come out and help them to build these new lives that they want for themselves. So within that kind of framework, we're sort of helping every person to identify which are the things you need. And once they've identified that and they've thought about how they can get those things, then they're actually feeling supported to build that new life. So that's kind of the the steps that people take on the way of desisting from crime. And then, you know, obviously the outcome of that at a macro level is a a reduction in recidivism. I can't help but think as you're speaking to just how interrelated each of those things are, right? Mm. Your your experience of a narrative about yourself as a a good parent or father or mother, as a part of a society with a job, uh, having a house and a, a place and a community, you know, take a, you know, one of those things away, the other becomes all that more harder and that, that inner narrative starts to fall apart. Is that part of the experience as well? And yeah, absolutely. And, and it can, they can interact in really complex ways. Like one thing that a lot of people will do when they're starting to rebuild their lives is reconnect with family. For example, that can be really good because perhaps you come out and you're able to stay with your parents to get your life back on your feet. But at some point, you're going to outstay your welcome and, and that relationship that's coming together, you know, could actually be strained again if you're there too long. So having all of these interlocking things fit together, you know, in a way that works for every different person is really important. Yeah, there's no doubt. And you kick out one and it can certainly have ramifications on the others. Part of that, I guess, also, you know, with our work post-release is coaching people through those things that happen so that if one leg of the chair gets kicked out, things don't necessarily fall over and helping them to kind of build their resilience and sticking to that plan and sticking to their belief that they can really make things work because things will go wrong. Not everything will come together nicely. And that's kind of the lesson of the research that often you put things in place gradually. It doesn't all come at once. And so you're building alongside the supports to make people thrive in the community, also building what a sense of resilience or um, both internal and external, I guess, extra supports when inevitably things do go wrong in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes you might come out of prison with nothing and then you might fall back in and reoffend, but your reoffending is is not too serious and you come out and you've actually, you know, while you were out, you had a job, this time you've got a bit of money in the bank, you've repaired your relationship with your family, you've got better support there. So you can... You, that's how people effectively rebuild their lives, you know, a little bit at a time. Now, pretty on and early on in the process, prisons were identified as a high-risk place in terms of transmission of the disease, obviously living close to each other. Many of the characteristics that we now know would foster high rates of transmission of the virus. Can you tell us a bit about how prisons adapted to that risk and, and I guess what the experience was like for people in prisons? It was pretty full-on and, and I kind of look back to March last year and just what a, a really full-on time that was. You know, things were kind of changing weekly uh, t- towards the end of the month, kind of daily really. We, we had a little bit of warning here in Australia, which I think helped and we were seeing data and evidence from overseas that prisons were a, a really unsafe place to be. A lot of organisations really came together, Corrections Victoria and a lot of the providers that we work with really came together, there were regular meetings with the minister, with the senior public servants. We were talking all the time to our fellow providers about how are we going to work in this situation, what's the role for masks, What, what should we continue transporting people in cars, getting common positions, just learning from each other. We were all doing it for the first time. You look back now and you'd have to say that, you know, in terms of inside the prison's Corrections Victoria set up a good system. You know, 14 days quarantine was really the key to it. 
for all people who were arrested in the community and put in prison were required to do 14 days quarantine. And that was pretty full on because it was effectively solitary confinement. But in the circumstances, it was um, perhaps justifiable when you think about the fact that I think in the end around about 30 people got COVID in quarantine. And I think all, almost all of them actually were asymptomatic. And so, you know, without that quarantine, COVID would have got into the prisons and it would have run rampant. And the people in prison responded incredibly well. They understood that this was a public health response and they understood that frontline prisons had to kind of do some things to make keep them safe. So even if you weren't in quarantine, those prisons that were getting people from the community, they had various sort of lockdown regimes where people had less time out of their cells. But one of the quick pro quos was that the people subjected to those regimes got what's known as emergency management days. So for a day where they were subject to lockdown, they got a day off their sentence. This helped sort of foster this sense that, yeah, we're being subjected to tougher conditions than normal, but there is a quid pro quo here and it is based on the importance of a public health response. Like there's a genuine reason for it and we can see that. And certainly things were tense at times in the prison. There's no doubt about that. But there was a sense that the sacrifices were sort of in the common good as you know, as a general rule. Sounds like the use of emergency management days was a, a positive gesture, I suppose, as well as part of an overall recognition of the of the trade-off and the the cost of complying with those extra mechanisms experienced by people in prison. Yeah. The things that they were sort of subjected to went beyond just the kind of lockdown element. The probably two other big changes were personal visits were suspended from March, and that's a really big deal. And then face-to-face professional visits were suspended a little bit more uh, gradually. Some, I think some organisations pulled out during the first lockdown and then others like us stayed in until the second lockdown. And the personal visits were obviously a big blow, you know, but one of the interesting things was there's a huge flood of technology into the prison. So hundreds of tablets uh, sort of overnight, sort of decades of progress really on, on technology in the click of a finger almost. For those people who aren't familiar with prisons, can you just tell us a bit what was the previous rules around technology in prisons? Was there any use of technology? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of that going into the change that came through COVID? There was very little of it. There was some technology used in education, but, you know, very locked down sort of computers used in a a common area. Basically, no access to the internet. It was very rudimentary. The only way you could visit with someone was if if they came to visit you in person at the prison or if they gave you a phone call. The only way you could write to someone was via snail mail. And things hadn't, although there'd been these huge technological changes, they'd really been kept on the other side of the prison gate almost entirely. And so for those of us who, uh, as soon as lockdown hit, picked up our smartphones and stayed in touch, that's something that became quite a big part of how they engage with with those outside. Yeah, all of a sudden there, uh, every prison's got sort of dozens of tablets. One other thing pre-lockdown was that there were video facilities. They were mostly reserved, though, for court procedures and other appointments that were directly connected to courts. All of a sudden, people are just sitting in the visits room with a tablet and they're able to have a visit with their family. And then eventually we started using it for our work in the prisons. When the second lockdown happened and we eventually were asked to leave the prisons, we had to then flip around and start doing things by technology. And the technology meant that we actually could deliver our programs over video that was something really different for us. So our biggest program in prisons is called Relink and we prepare people for a release. They get to the end of the program and they've got that sort of transition plan I was kind of talking about earlier where they've identified what goals they want to achieve when they get out. 
most of that runs as a group program. So all of a sudden, sort of overnight in August, our staff are out of the prisons. They're sitting at home like you and me now, talking to a guy on a tablet. So it's, a, it's gone from a group session to a one-on-one session. It's gone from face-to-face to over a Zoom call. It required a huge amount of change from our end, but change that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago wouldn't even have been possible and change that, frankly, you know, on the eve of COVID, we wouldn't have thought was was possible. That's kind of how quickly things changed in the Victorian prisons as a result of COVID. I'd be interested to hear what you learned from that experience. That's obviously a huge change in service delivery for your staff and for the people you work with. What have you learned from engaging in those services remotely? There have been positives and negatives. For some people, it's a, it's a lot more difficult online. If you've got an intellectual disability or a cognitive impairment like an acquired brain injury, it just can be a little bit more difficult when you're not in the same room as someone. And it can be more difficult to just kind of, you know, read cues and, and build rapport. You know, but on the other hand, we did have some people report back that some people who might kind of clam up when it's really intense and personal when you're in a room together actually were able to kind of reveal more over video so there was there was a bit of a a mix there you know certainly we kind of see best practice for that program has been getting back to -to face-to-face and they're really keen to do that but also an incidental you know lesson we learned was that the one-on-one sessions we kind of were able to experiment with a new delivery model and we've kind of gradually done more one-on-one sessions over the years of delivering relink but it really enabled us to do the whole thing one-on-one and see where the benefits are to being able to sit with a person. And again, if it's someone who doesn't like opening up, if it's someone who has um, some sort of intellectual disability, it could be really great to be able to do things with them one-on-one. But on the other hand, group can be really good for getting people to open up and have a conversation role and allowing people to bounce off each other. So that's something that we kind of missed. So we are now sort of just talking to corrections as we go back in about redesigning the way we deliver Relink post-COVID to kind of take advantage of both of those things in a, in a better way because we've been able to experiment and see the results of it. We run a family counselling program at a few prisons and our counsellors actually, when we were talking about coming back into the prisons, were like, well, we, we don't want to go back in until the mask mandate is lifted because as much as, you know, in-person is really best practice, at the moment, it's a choice between being over a video link where I can see someone's face and read their nonverbal cues or being in the prison where we both have to wear a mask. And, and it's very difficult for a counsellor who kind of relies on that ability to read people to give a really a good service in that environment. Isn't that interesting from service delivery more generally too, just how significant that is? Do you want to talk a bit about family visits having to stop, but the opportunities that come from being able to use video conferencing technologies with families. I know that's been something that you've been thinking about for a while and this gave it an opportunity to try that out to a greater degree. Family visits over video are really interesting. So when COVID hit, obviously they stopped. And for people who are used to seeing their families and being able to hug them, that was a hard thing, but they were able to have that video visit. But, you know, one thing though about, first off, about the change that happened was that there are people who have family interstate or overseas or, you know, in the country with low mobility who hadn't seen their loved ones for years. Corrections asked us to just stand up a phone service for people who wanted to make video calls but, you know, and they just needed a little bit of help. And so we did that and we'd get chatting to the people and who, who were asking for our help and, you know, it was like a mum who hadn't seen her son for over a decade, you know, a brother who lives in the UK. You know, the difference was monumental in those cases where you went from, you know, nothing but a phone call to actually being able to see each other and it makes a a real difference. 
But more generally, we've run a program, uh, one of the um, women's prisons at Karangawa out near Castle Main. It was for women who had kids in the community. We did an evaluation at the end of the pilot and we're now talking to CV about continuing that. What the evaluation showed was that it's just a completely different type of a visit. If you imagine a kid, you've got to, to see your mum, you've got to go into prison, you've got to have the security checks here in this really cold room, there are other families in there, and a lot of kids you know, tense up and it's not a great necessarily a great interaction with their parent. We do these visits between 3 and 9 p.m. So after school, the kid might have had dinner, had a shower in their pyjamas sitting on the other couch. They'd show mum the artwork they'd done. Maybe they'd go out in the driveway with the phone and show them that they could ride their bike without wheels. And so there was this really natural interaction between the mum and the kid that just doesn't happen during the prison visits. And another thing that we noticed was that the mums actually could parent Kids get ratty and mum could tell them off. They could sit down with the primary carer who might be like a grandparent and the child and talk about discipline problems. And that's really important because one thing that people talk about when they come out of prison after a long time is they come out of the family and they try to be the parent and, and the kids are like, well, who are you to tell me what to do? Where are you being? So we actually saw that all these sort of unexpected benefits we were able to kind of document and that was one of them. They were able to continue to be the parent while they were inside. So what we kind of ascertained from all of this was that video visits aren't better than in-person visits. They're just different. And ideally, you'd have both because you still want to be able to hug your kid and they want to be able to hug you. So you want that in-person visit. But that video visit gives them access to just a different kind of interaction that in some ways is a lot richer. That's the challenge for us coming out of COVID with everything to do with technology now. How do we jettison the bits that were not ideal and go back to what we did before? And how do we keep the bits that are really, really promising and that, that can actually make things better? And I think a lot of organisations in all sorts of different sectors are going through that conversation at the moment. Obviously, it's not just uh, the prison sector. Thinking about your earlier comments about the plan towards exiting prison and moving into potentially a rhythm, the supports, the, I suppose the gap between in prison at home, it must play some sort of role too in, in reducing that gap and making that transition just just that little bit easier yeah it's all about integration or, or reintegration and, and if that should start from the first day you get into prison it's so important in those months before release to be doing that but also it's hard to build a connection if you let it drop off for a year or three years or five years beforehand you know if someone has to be in prison what are we doing from day one to prepare them to go back to the good things that they had before and, and to things that they weren't able to build before, but that we know are necessary for them to kind of succeed in building that new life. Well, let's talk about that transition during the crisis. So there were people, of course, finishing their sentences and and leaving prison during that crisis. You you spoke a little bit about some of your remote support through that, but how is that experience for people coming out of prison being different during a time of physical distancing or other restrictions during the pandemic? Coming out of prison is often a traumatic event all by itself. And that might surprise people to hear, but often the life you've left behind is quite chaotic. 50% of people come out of homelessness, for example. You might be worried that you'll slip back into your use of alcohol or drugs. You know, there's all these sort of things that are coming up for you. That was sort of exacerbated by COVID. You know, people, some people had underlying health conditions and were worried about going out to the community or had loved ones with underlying health conditions. 
you know, during strict lockdown, some had arranged accommodation, like they'd arranged a room with a friend or they were going to go and live with their elder, elderly mother and all of a sudden they couldn't do that or they had a job lined up. Was the job going to be there when they got out? So there was this real, you know, extra anxiety on top for them. On the other hand, when people f- first got out during COVID, often they actually did report they found things a little bit easier because the pace of life was slower. Like they didn't have to run around to a million appointments. If you've got parole conditions, for example, there can be quite a lot on your plate. There wasn't as much pressure to catch up with people. Maybe sometimes the people it's better you don't catch up with. You know, there's just a chance to kind of ease in, which they appreciated. But, you know, gradually that isolation did catch up with everyone. So they missed for example, as things went on, the amount of face-to-face time that they'd usually get with us, with our case managers. Part of what we do is connecting to a lot of other services in, you know, you know, health, AOD, mental health, you know, life skills organisations, all sorts of things. Generally, the sector's bouncing back really slowly and either services still aren't running or, or they're still running virtually and, and people are quite sick of that or don't like it as much. And that's putting pressure on face-to-face services because people want to use them. You know, so that kind of link to organisations has been much harder during COVID. Probably the biggest thing was housing and housing has been really interesting because we would normally be able to pay for two or three nights accommodation for someone coming out in a motel or trying to set up something more if that's, if they're in that really crisis situation. We were actually given some extra funds by the government to ensure that people could stay off the streets as part of their plan, which most people probably were aware of, homeless people in hotels and things like that. So we're able to pay to keep people in hotels right through, and that's great. It's better than being on the streets. But on the other hand, you're in limbo. You know, you can't really start your new life while you're living in a motel. I mean, a practical level, you might really, one of the things you might be wanting to work on is your independent life skills, but you don't even have a kitchen. But also just you don't unpack your bags. You don't mentally unpack and start that new life. And now, of course, that's over and we're, we're coming back to reality and everything's still there. You know, the public housing shortage is still there. There's a real shortage of private rental accommodation. For example, in December, I think there was one private rental property in Geelong that was within the budget for someone on JobSeeker. And that was the increased, you know, JobSeeker that was almost double new start. And of course, now we're going back to the new start level with 25 extra bucks. And we're starting to notice more people on the streets so far. You know, none of our clients are, but that's going to end. We're going to be in a situation where we, again, like we were pre-COVID, where people are going out, we're just unable to find accommodation for them. You said something like 50% of people coming out of prison are going into some form of homelessness, whether it's on the streets, mm. couch surfing, whatever. I mean, it, the long-term silver lining is a significant investment from government in, in public housing, but that's, well, that's it's got a long time to come on stream, I suspect, but is, is at least a step in the right direction. I mean, it was a really positive announcement coming out of the budget. I mean, it's a, it, it's a big investment and yeah, it will make a difference. But of course, you know, as you point out, it's, um, it takes a long time to build that kind of infrastructure. So in the short term, it won't make a big difference. But as most people would say, it's a well overdue investment in public housing. And for those of our clients coming out who are going to require that kind of assistance, who can't get themselves into the private rental market, that's going to make a difference. It's really important. What are you hopeful that? you've learned from this experience and how, how your services could be different. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, talked a bit about technology and I think it's just more generally that the different way of doing things has allowed, allowed us to kind of pull things apart a little bit and think about them in new ways. And certainly for us as an organisation at the more basic level, like everyone, we're sort of asking our staff, how do we want things to look post-COVID? I mean, it's we run statewide, but most of our staff aren't in 
offices around the state. You know, we have, you know, 25 or so staff whose all of their role is being in a prison and then we have another 10 or so staff who work in the community and so on. We're able to kind of work and collaborate a lot more closely and we've spent some money to upgrading our technology during COVID to kind of take advantage of that. In terms of the way we change our work, yeah, you know, I think that we mentioned the kind of value of video visits for families. I think there's lots of other cases where you might be wanting to run a statewide service and video can play a really important role in that. So that's really good too. On the other hand, we're sort of coming back and seeing the same problems still exist. We mentioned homelessness. Uh, In addition to that, only 22% of people are coming out to a job. All sorts of people, groups of people are overrepresented in prison still, people with mental health conditions, alcohol and other drug addictions, intellectual disability, our First Nations people, none of that's changed. One thing we were actually able to do during COVID while we were kind of locked down was just hunker down on the kind of innovations that that we knew we wanted to try and do before COVID. So, you know, we're looking at really expanding our families' work and we've spent a lot of time sort of you know, developing a program model for connecting people coming out of prison to employment. And there's real possibilities there because the social procurement framework in Victoria actually means that organisations that want contracts from the government have to meet sort of targets that can include employing disadvantaged Victorians like people in our group. So it, it's kind of a lot of it has actually been COVID has allowed us to you know, slow down perhaps the external kind of you know outward facing work in some ways and just have a year of planning and developing. And I think we've made the most of that, which has been really good and we're pretty well placed now to sort of get back to talking to people and planning to kind of make some of this a reality. And you also mentioned a couple of times maybe re-emphasising some of the places where face-to-face and and that personal connection is something that can't go away. Have you got a couple of those that are front of mind that you've learnt that where as as great as technology is, it won't replace certain interactions? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've spoken a fair bit about in-prison. I'll talk talk about about post-prison. So that relink program leads into Reconnect where they get a case manager post-release to kind of put that plan in place. Those case managers, they work in the community, but they do two visits into the prison, you know, at least two pre-release to meet the person. It's about building a connection so that when they walk out of prison, because often we do day of release pick up from the prison gate for them if, if they need that, they need to be able to walk out of that gate and see someone who's a familiar face and they've built a relationship with, even if it's just over a couple of one-hour meetings because it reduces anxiety and it creates a better basis for a relationship to form where you can be coaching them and helping them through those difficult moments post-release. And that human connection is really important and something that was really missed. And in the height of the pandemic, you know, most of the support that we were giving post-release was was phone and video. Our... Uh, case managers did some really interesting things to try and get a bit more face-to-face time, go down the beach where they could kind of walk three or four metres apart and chat or, you know, set up a card table in the front yard for lunch while um, the participants on the other side of the screen door just sitting in the hallway so that they could chat, you know, because there's just that real need for human contact that hasn't changed and and there's something about face-to-face that remains kind of the best practice. And when you're talking about that, goal of helping people build a new life there's just there's only so far you can go with video my guest today has been murray smith the ceo of vaco murray thanks so much for talking to us thanks tom it was really enjoyable 